Now, what's interesting about water, there is, of course, this story of the planet changing, but mostly water is a story about us. It's a story about, essentially, a sedentary civilization. We've all decided to stay put in a world of moving water. And that has meant that for the better part of the last 10,000 years, we've struggled with this question of how do you build cities and have societies that are in place while around you, where rivers and storms and floods move along. I've been very, very privileged to be born and raised next to the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And for me, it was always, as far as I can remember, my real source of energy. It's looking at the ocean, looking at the energy which comes from the ocean, which can be, if you look at the sea in general and at an ocean, sometimes it's very calm, sometimes it's very wild. And it so much reflects our possible states of mind and spirit. And it inspires me to see that you can be calm. There are times for tranquility. There are times for action where you need to engage and you need to bring everything with you and overcome all the difficulties. And when I see the strong waves, that's what it makes me think of, that I can face obstacles. But there's also then a moment where I can relax. There are no waves and I can just enjoy the calm, the serenity. I grew up in Israel and always went to the beach and just had a great appreciation for the ocean and its beauty and its calmness. And then you started hearing about plastic in the water, not being clean enough to swim, and animals dying because they're getting wrapped up in plastic. And that's probably the first thing that really hit home to me is this beach is so beautiful, it's so amazing. The ocean is just so wonderful. When I was in Northern India, everywhere I was, I was passing by the Ganges River and I realized that this story was about water. This story was about connecting with this place as I would a baptism. I'm a Catholic. I don't relate to India in that same spiritual way as a native, as a Hindu would, but I can relate to it as a person that I feel cleansed and refreshed and purified by water. Being born and raised in Haiti, I always had an affinity for the ocean. My family always took us out to the ocean almost every weekend. So we were either up north of Port-au-Prince or down south of Port-au-Prince. So we would go into the water once we arrived, come out looking like prunes you know, in the water for so long. We planted over a million trees for the development of new laws and protecting fisheries resources. Educational materials that we've developed that tens close to 100 fishing associations that we've helped strengthen and provide guidance on how to perfect fishing methods, as well as just in general, bringing the importance of monitoring and managing our coastal marine resources better to the forefront of environmental issues in Haiti. I grew up in Bangladesh and I grew up surrounded by water scarcity. Too much water, too little water, wrong time, wrong place, both flooding and drought as well as drinking water scarcity. And it wasn't just about quantity and quality, but it was availability, timing, spatial connections, and all of that. So a lot of the issues that I witnessed, in addition to like climate breakdown, ecological conditions, deteriorating, rising poverty, but at the same time, ongoing development interventions, globalization, I had all these questions in terms of thinking about how do we understand water governance? A lot of the issues were around human right to water, but at the same time, water scarcity and technology, development-driven water infrastructure, but at the same time, looking at that intersectionality of gender and class and ethnicity in terms of who has water, who doesn't, 
who's laboring for water, how does it affect people's sense of themselves, local politics, household dynamics, but then also their sense of well-being. Water insecurity and water scarcity is affecting all people in almost every part of the world at this point. Today, by 2025, we expect 1.8 billion people to suffer from water scarcity, which means they have no access to clean, safe drinking water within 30 minute walk of their home. And then two thirds of the global population are experiencing water stress, which is to say that they can no longer predictably rely on that water source to either be available and or safe to consume. You fast forward by 2050, and we expect that to be 6 billion people that have water scarcity. So the rate at which this problem is increasing is far greater than the current infrastructure that has supported water for humans. And that's where innovation and rapid deployment of technology at scale is really essential. And so the problems that we're seeing are not just evidence of a changing climate, they're also evidence of failures of solutions. They're the failures of institutions that have been built over centuries to manage these water problems. And for a while, we thought we had succeeded. For a while, we thought we had conquered nature and we were going to essentially live a life unencumbered by the impacts of water. And now we're discovering that that's not true. Try to understand where you might be, we go out looking for whales in general. And it's hard enough to find any whale in the ocean. The ocean is just so massive and the whales are so few relatively that just finding one whale is really hard, let alone finding one particular whale. So we had to start with just finding whales. And sometimes the scientists go out to look for whales and don't find any for days. And it's something I really, really like in my work. How do we film the unfilmable thing? What can we offer the audience to have to kind of lean in and think about these ideas without it just being such a didactic a presentation of facts or outrage or something, but really inviting that investigation from the audience. Looking at my daughter, I just want her to appreciate the natural world. We have all these impacts happening and there's a lot of negative storytelling, but just going out and experiencing nature, it is still magical. And that inspires so much action simply by going and experiencing nature. And I think there's so much that we can do. It's about being optimistic now, not negative. We really need to focus on creating excitement around some of these solutions. And for me, there's no reason why the future can't be bright. You know, we can focus on these areas where we can save. We can then be ingenious how we approach it. And we can, within her lifetime, see that recovery, real bouncing back from these major impacts that are happening. So I try to keep this optimistic look of let's really start thinking about the solutions and let's really look at the oceans for those solutions. Our focus is primarily on liquid fuels because liquid fuels are relatively valuable. It's the highest value product that we can make to have an impact on climate change. In order to replace 10% of the liquid fuels used in the United States of America, we would have to process the kelp growing from an area about the size of the state of Utah. And Utah is, of course, a fairly large western state. It's a good-sized area. But the Pacific Ocean has an area 705 times the area of Utah. So there's a, an abundance of area out there in the ocean. If we were to farm about half of 1% of all the oceans of the world, we could replace all the liquid transportation fuels used for long-haul vehicles. Now, long-haul vehicles are the ones that 
batteries really can't operate. In other words, there's no foreseeable battery technology coming down the pipeline that is going to allow a jet aircraft full of three or 400 passengers to fly from here to Singapore. That's just not likely to happen. No battery technologist is saying they have a technology to do that. But liquid transportation fuels, of course, do that routinely. And what we need to do is create liquid transportation fuels to allow not only the airplanes, but the container ships, the long haul trucks and so on. These are the ones that are really not amenable to battery technology, while short haul vehicles, commuter cars, delivery trucks, fleets of city vehicles, all the different things that go home every night and you can plug them in. Those kinds of vehicles, it's not a problem to make those battery powered. We need transportation fuels and we want those fuels not to be fossil fuels because about a third of all energy goes to liquid transportation fuels and something like half of that goes to these long haul vehicles. So we want to replace those and we can do that with only about half of 1% of the ocean being farmed. If we were to further go on and farm 5% of the ocean, we could replace all fossil fuels everywhere. We have an interesting feature that the kelp farms produce well over a hundred times as much fuel as was used to create the farm in the beginning. So over the roughly 30 year projected life of these farms, we would expect to create well over a hundred times as much carbon neutral fuel as was used to create Europe is in the grip of a fierce heat wave, with many countries across the continent experiencing record temperatures. The UK's top Wild temperature today was in Coningsby in Lincolnshire, where it hit 40.3 degrees, according to the provisional figures. But more than 30 France, weather stations across England beat the previous record of 38.7 in July 2019. And Scotland had its hottest day ever, 34.8 degrees. Yet the gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Or die. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? The greatest user of water by far in almost every country in the world is agriculture. And if you can reduce the amount of water in agriculture by even a few percentage points, you can transform the life of people in cities by having so much more water. We're really starting to witness serious climate extremes that can no longer be ignored. And the IPCC, one of our key conclusions to that report was that Effectively, the human fingerprint on the climate system is now undeniable. It is now an established fact that we have warmed every single continent, every ocean basin on the planet. And again, that's a pretty serious thing to contemplate that 
Human activity from the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing of land has led to this energy imbalance in the Earth's system, which is leading to a rapidly shifting climate. So we're not at the point in the United States of telling farmers what they can grow and, and can't grow. We probably will get there, but we're not there yet. And one of the things that we have focused on instead, and I think California is a great example with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which has broken down the state into a number of different groundwater sustainability agencies. Each one has a plan to basically minimize groundwater losses, or at least to manage them and stretch out groundwater losses over a long period of time. And so that's a slightly different approach in that what's being managed is the groundwater level. And what's not happening is we're not telling farmers, you can grow this or you can grow that. So we'll see how that works. It has a long-term implementation horizon, like 20 more years, which is a little slow. But there's a question on the table about will this be state or national policy? Will we get to the point where we start saying, we don't have enough water. Let's think nationally about food security and what crops we actually need for the health of people in the United States first and go that way. And what can we grow where given water availability and how we set up our food system. We have a tremendous amount of work to do on this topic. My fear is that we're being reactive rather than proactive. The chemical that I talk about in the book Exposure and that you see depicted in the film Dark Waters or the documentary The Double We Know, the chemical known as PFOA, it's just one of these PFOS chemicals. And what you see in that story, in those films and in the book, is how long it took for the information about just that one chemical to make its way out to the scientific community, to the regulators, to the public, to the point where you could actually start taking steps to regulate this chemical. Here's a chemical that was invented after World War II, was being put into massive use worldwide as early as the early 1950s. And it really, the information about the toxicity, the health threat was being developed by the companies internally during the 60s and 70s. Yet the information about the threat from that chemical didn't start to make its way out to the rest of the world until late 1990s, early 2000s, when litigation and lawsuits began. And then even then, it's now been 20 years since that information first started to come out. And we are still waiting for enforceable federal drinking water standards for just that one chemical. It just really highlights how difficult and slow the process is in the United States to regulate chemicals, even once we know that they're there and once we know that they pose a serious threat to human health and to the environment, it still is a painstakingly slow process. How does a dying person know when it's over? They say that your life flashes before your eyes, but that isn't happening to me now. All I can think is about escaping from the water that I love more than anything else. I've spent my life immersed in a relationship with this element that nourishes and destroys, buoys up and drowns, that has both freed me and taken the lives of my friends. I'm very connected to nature in the natural world. I was very fortunate to grow up in a small town and that experience really led me to building a relationship with the natural world, particularly the ocean 
and the beautiful redwood trees that are the tallest trees in the world that are on the coast there. And at that time, there and still is quite a bit of deforestation going on with logging operations. And I quickly learned the contrast between having this incredible, beautiful place that I was privileged to grow up and at the same time see the way that humanity is living right now in extractive industries and a very consumptive lifestyle was destroying the very places that I had come to love so dearly. For example, I recently went to the Indiana Dunes and my mom and dad didn't really recognize a lot of the scenery that they saw in front of them. And I also went to a state park called Starved Rock in Illinois this past summer, and it was the same thing. My parents didn't really recognize the scenery because the water level was so much lower. And there were so many fewer trees than there had been in the past. And so the idea that these places that give us so much energy and that give us so much life are being killed and taken away by us is really terrifying. So I'm an explorer. I love the beauty of the world. I've seen fantastic things like the delta of the Ganges River in the Gulf of Bengali during moonlight. I've seen the deserts with the dunes, with the rocks of the sunrise with my solar-powered airplane. I've flown above oceans where there were whales jumping in the water and the big bunches of dolphins when I was flying with solar impulse. It's beautiful, but it's not enough to motivate people. And don't forget one thing. What we are damaging is not the beauty of nature. What is damaging is the quality of life of human beings on Earth. Because we can still have beautiful things to see. But if we have a climate change, if we have tropical disease in Europe, if we have heat waves, floods, droughts, millions of climate refugees, life will be miserable even if nature is still beautiful. My message to you is if your self-interest depends somehow on keeping the status quo, just look in the mirror and see if this is something that you can reconcile within yourself. Is it okay that you benefit at the expense of everyone and everything else? Is that a way that you really feel like you are winning at life? If not, then reconsider what you're doing and just realize that we all live in this inextricably connected closed sphere in the middle of space. Anything that harms one area harms every area. There is nobody who can escape dirty air, dirty water, dirty food, economic, political disruptions. We're all in this together. So don't fool yourself by thinking somehow you're going to come out of this unscathed and having, quote unquote, won while everybody else loses. In today's society, we all drive cars, we all use fuel, we want to be warm, we like to buy stuff, and it adds up. It's funny, the shoreline is probably one of the most important lines on the planet. It's where most of the big cities are, but it's moving, and it's moving towards us because sea level's rising, and sea level's rising because ice is melting, and as the ocean warms, it expands. So this is a massive problem. And if you look around the planet today, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's Miami, New York, or Boston, or Philadelphia, Charleston, they're right on the coast, virtually at sea level. And if we look around the world, most of the world's big cities 
with a few exceptions, are on the coast virtually at sea level. So as sea level continues to rise, they're all in trouble and there's only so many things we can do. And there's both erosion where the cliffs or the bluffs are retreating and there's flooding where low-lying areas like Miami is one example, New Orleans, Jakarta, Venice is another example that's been with us for a long time. They get flooded many days out of the year and those numbers are increasing. Where the land is very flat, a foot of sea level can move the shoreline in a thousand feet. So I think many coastal countries are now trying to decide what do we do? Until fairly recently, there was still a lot of denial places like Florida. Well, they finally have woken up and seen, wow, we're getting flooded once a week. You see these pictures of people wading through the streets with plastic bags over their legs because it's three feet deep in water. And that's not just a momentary thing. This is an upward trend. And the question is not, is it happening? We know it's happening. It's how soon is it going to become impossible to live in these places like Venice? or Miami, and then how do we deal with it? The number of solutions are finite. There's denial, that's not very effective. It's really cheap until it happens. There's the thing we've done most often, which is armor. We can build these massive walls and rock revetments. And Northern Europe has done that for centuries. Maybe the Dutch are the best example, but even the Dutch are starting to move back. Nothing we can do is gonna hold back the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean forever. We just can't do it. And any new structures today, we have to really question it and say, how long is that good for? People are really moved by our ocean backyard and they say, what can we do? And I say, there's something everybody can do and it doesn't cost you anything. I said, vote. Vote for the people that represent you. The Creative Process and One Planet podcast wishes our listeners Happy World Oceans Day. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Erland Cooper's music in this episode is from his album, Folded Landscapes. Music is courtesy of Erland Cooper and Universal Music Enterprises. This podcast is created by Mia Funk, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate podcast producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Sabrina Kim. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.